Patients find their doctors online. So how do we make sure that we're the ones that they find? Find out how to meet your patients where they are online with Brian Cush of Tidal Health. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a show by me, Dr. Bradley Block, and this is a practical guide for practicing physicians where we interview experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Brian Cush, thanks for being on the podcast. Awesome to be here, Brad. Looking forward to the conversation. So tell us about your origin story. Like, how did you get into into healthcare specifically? Because you started off as a as a banker, right? You started off in finance and then took this pivot. So tell us about that. How did that happen? Yeah, formally, I'm trained. I have a, a master's in information systems. So I come at things from a very structured data set perspective. And like, how do I connect aggregate systems? How do I connect things that traditionally didn't speak to each other? That was originally born in the finance and technology world, uh, partially from that work. And then even spinning off the version of this company, I started to understand uh, this very structured data set around ICD and CPT codes and this evolving language around it where everyone had a universal agreement on what these meant, but no one was really looking at it from a consumer perspective was how do people then find the care that ultimately goes into this very structured set? And we started to tackle that of, can we create a structured database around the unstructured way that people look for healthcare? And just taking that train of thought allowed us to spin off into healthcare. And we've just stayed focused since the agency started. But your end user, right? The people that use your help are the physicians, not the patients, right? Like those are your clients. Correct. Yeah. We're working with health systems, health brands, individual practitioners, but the business of medicine has a very structured language to it, even from how to diagnose it, how to bill it, what things are profitable, unprofitable, and how do we understand that relative to then the consumer that we're trying to connect with? Okay. So maybe I'm misunderstanding something. Um, Let's take a step back. What does your company do? (laughs) <laughs> we're a marketing and technology agency that specializes in healthcare. So we do the things that I'd say that like traditional people know of digital marketing, if that's web development, web design, SEO, uh, search ads, social ads, photography, videography, anything that could potentially interact with a patient or provider that you're trying to attract to your brand or practice. That's the outside of us from, I think, making sure people understand what we do, have a comparison point to other agencies but under the hood of us, from really a technology and really language standpoint, is all of those things have some mode of communication. If it's a keyword you're buying or copy that you're writing, it needs to be written to the end consumer of your product, i.e. a potential patient. Got it. Okay. So you're using the data produced by a certain health system to figure out which patients they best match with. And then you can figure out how best to help them. So rather than just saying, like the the doctor saying, like, I want to see more patients to do more knee replacements. Like you're then digging into not what they say they need, but what they actually need based on their ICD-9 codes, ICD-10 codes and CPT codes. Yeah, that's one entry point of conversations we have. It's kind of that supply and demand conversation where it's maybe a service line you want to grow, but is the market research show that those patients and that or that procedure or whatever it is exists? And then there's the kind of more unstructured way where we're parsing through data going, 
is this medically relevant to you? We'll have these like really funny conversations of, hey, we see this new search habit, this new search pattern or search terms that we can't properly classify or kind of draw a straight line into a diagnosis or a condition. And we'll literally work sometimes with our clients to understand we've often, it's funny that we're starting this, we've like times we'll actually start to create things that we think are new diagnosis. Just because someone's searching that way, we're not going to just ignore it, even though we can't find a straight line. And we'll try and work with our clients to go, did that yield to bring in someone that was clinically relevant? Kind of in the same way that Amazon knows that you're pregnant before you do because what you're searching or that Google knows <laughs> that there's the start of a uh, flu epidemic before the before the health policy people do because of the symptoms that people are searching. So you're able to then utilize the information that comes out of search engines to help hospital systems and practices figure out what's coming next and help them get ahead of it. Yes and no. That's more of a forecasting like propensity modeling, which we do to a degree. But sometimes it's just this like one-off. I'll just, I'll just dig into this example. It's funny that we're starting here. We're working with uh, a brand that it thought itself was more of a women's health-centered brand. And there was a, a diagnosis of something called PGAD, which is Persistent General Arousal Disorder, which historically was really associated only to women and clinically categorized to women. But we started to see these huge subsets of search, particularly on YouTube, of people self-identifying male PGAD. So even though that's kind of incorrect clinically as a diagnosis, we weren't going to just ignore them. And we wanted to speak to that category and go, well, this could be what you're actually suffering from. That's kind of the wrong clinical diagnosis. It doesn't happen in that kind of like binary transactional delivery of information. But that in theory is us going, well, we're not just going to ignore them because that's not how medicine would label it. So then how do you, how would you utilize that information? Because again, your end user are, are clinicians and not patients. So it's not like you're trying to, I mean, and you're not diagnosing these people on TikTok, right? Um, but you're, I guess you're letting a health system know that people are searching for this and that they're looking for help. And so we want to find a way to make sure that their searches end up with good information. Correct. Okay. I mean, the simplest thing is you need to meet your consumer where they are. If you just say, hey, we're only going to talk about what we do in this very structured coding and diagnosis language, you're going to miss huge swaths of how people are searching for healthcare. Okay. So in that scenario, we'd work with them and go, if someone came into your office and presented as a man saying, hey, I'm persistently arousing my dent, like, what would you say to them? How would you communicate to them that this could be clinically what you're experiencing or how you might properly diagnose this? Well, I would say, you can write sir, that content and have that conversation. I'm an otolaryngologist. You are very far from the wrong place. <laughs> Please put your pants back on. <laughs> we don't have gowns here. <laughs> I'm really glad you took it there. Yeah. yeah. And then you fire your marketer. Yeah. <laughs> Bunch of people with priapism walking in. Man, um, although there is erectile tissue in the nose, in the turbinates, but that's okay. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll digress. Okay, so so let's talk about because the, you know it's physicians that are listening to this, right? And so we we're trying to grow our practices, right? And so there are two main sources, and it's the patients themselves or referring doctors. And so if we are trying to meet them where they are, the first question is, 
where are they? Let's start, let's start with patients. Where are they? Yeah, when, when we have this conversation, I generally try and bucket it into a couple different areas of going kind of, are you looking at it from a short term and a long term perspective of like effect on your business? And then are you willing to invest time or are you willing to invest money? Like those categories and start to kind of affect where to focus your efforts. Uh, the simplest thing is just saying where they are. And the biggest thing you always recommend is building and owning your rep- reputation. Uh, there's a, like a really interesting data point I always reference that we have this central database kind of on all the web properties that we manage. And it gives us a really unique insight into when and where and how consumers make decisions around healthcare. There's probably several hundred thousand kind of appointments within this system. On average, about 13% globally come from Google My Business. Just that little property alone, when you Google something and you see that little kind of scorecard and there's reputation associated to it, the reviews on that drive in aggregate like 13% of all appointments. These people never interact with your website. They never interact. They're coming to this little card that Google owns. And it's really driven around the reviews and reputation that you build on that platform. And those reviews are coming just from Google or are they taking reviews from other review sites as well? Just from Google. Okay. They're not a review aggregator. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that, I mean, that data alone, that that last percentage uh, is bigger in aggregate than every other reputation source combined. Okay. So we also categorize like Yelp and HealthGrades and WebMD and all the really traditional platforms that maybe validation touch points, but that last attribution, like conversion source is the Google My Business profile. So if and Google knows it. They're cramming it into a million other places too. So if we're directing our patients, if we're like, hey, because some of the patients, they're really effusive, right? They're like, oh my goodness, you're so amazing. I'm so much better. You're the 11th doctor I've seen. You're the best. You know, it might make sense to be like, hey, you know what? You could do me a solid and write me a review on, and we should be specifically directed then to Google, it sounds like. Yeah, and I know that's a hard conversation. It's funny, you seem a bit more comfortable with it when we talk to doctors, they get a little like icky around it. But especially if you're a practice owner or you're in it and you have some incentivization in the business, it's just an honest conversation that this is what will help me connect with future patients that are suffering from the same thing as you. And helps my business. I'd appreciate you sharing your experience in this outlet. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's it's hard to have. But sometimes they're just like, I'm going to send you all my friends. And then it really dovetails into, you know, it would really help me out. Like, thank you so much. And then also they feel like they've done something for you. You Like, you've helped them so much. Yes, they've paid you and the insurance paid you. You're certainly being compensated. There's no question about that. But, you know, this also... You know, does help you. So you might just put your tail between your legs a little bit and ask for the, just ask for the like, ask for the five stars, ask for whatever, however it is you want to, uh, you want to go about it in the same way that I'm going to ask everyone to subscribe and, you know, download all my back episodes at the end of this episode, right? Like we do it fine <laughs> online. It's just a little harder to do when there's someone in front of you. Okay. So Google, so there, so that's, that's, that's a, that's a big place, right? Like, um, a rather high return on investment way to to put your time to make sure that you're getting better visibility and positive positive reviews. Um, 
where else should we spend our time or our money? Yeah, I think that that's a short term one, I would say, because if you can, if you're seeing patients, you have a buying that you can leverage on and start collecting and building reputation, and it will start to yield pretty quickly. Uh, and then we'll just consistently yield over time. A little bit more of a longer term play, I'd say, from a time investment is quality content. Still, at this point, healthcare is held to such a higher standard. There's just this thirst from the channels and the platforms to hear from authoritative voices, i.e. doctors. So it's, it's, a, it's a tag balance between both that, almost to our first joking example, you want to make sure you're writing to the right audience. A lot of times when we come in, the content is so medical heavy and kind of jargon focused that you're only really talking to the referring community. So, but writing and kind of owning your own brand and content around uh, connecting with your potential consumers or potential patients is the biggest kind of second non-finance uh, investment I would recommend. So what type of content? What are we, like, are we talking blogs? Are we talking Instagram posts? Like what, what is content here? Yeah, sorry, web content. So if that's blogs or just pages on a web domain still. Uh, we'll talk on social. There's a very different angle on how to think about content there because it's just it's uh, its shelf life is so short. Yeah. But uh, in a like kind of shift of topic, there's so much push towards uh, validating the author behind information, especially long form like written content and even videography. That as a doctor, you are the source of information. So being very vocal about not only your take on your specialty and just the experience that you're having treating people and whatever your specialty is a goldmine of information. We talk a lot about side gigs on this show. So if your side gig or even your main gig is a medical technology product that you want to pitch, or you're even in the early stages of product development, you could benefit from consulting with Charm Economics. They use government data, peer-reviewed journals, and trade literature to support and enhance your business model at all stages. Whether an early stage pitch deck creation, return on investment modeling, or peer-reviewed article production, they can help. See how Charm Economics can transform your business development today so you can focus on building your product, growing your network, and implementing your vision. Check them out at charmeconomics.com. Okay, so so now we're talking about SEO. Now we're talking about people using a search engine to find us. Um, that's, that's interesting. Um, but, but that, to me, is not local. You know, like we're going to be if like I'm showing up high in the searches, I'm showing up high across the country and across the world, but people are looking for a doctor locally. So, you know, how do you, you know, how do you explain that contradiction maybe? Yeah. I'm not going to say that your website's going to only show locally and produce someone that's coming to like knock on your door and be a customer, but universally like there's people looking locally for what you do but they may not have the, like a local intent so even if it's and we're in the new york market if someone's searching for sinus specialist near me they may not be saying new york or manhattan or whatever it is but if your content speaks to why you're the sinus specialist then there's enough indication to that person's location that you're going to show up so we're getting a little in the weeds into like the uh, the algorithms themselves, but that to me is like a, a, a positive byproduct. So great. Okay. If you get traffic outside of your core demo, like geo, great. You're not paying me anything for that. You're still going to capture the people that are in your geo looking for what you do. Got it. Okay. So you mentioned social. So now that you mentioned it, let's, let's dive into that. 
So the half-life is shorter. What? And again, it's the same issue where, you know, social media, Twitter is international. Instagram is international. We're not, you know, necessarily attracting, if we have a big following, it's not necessarily a local following. What's the goal here of social media? Yeah, that's the almighty question. And if I look at it from like a generational perspective, social is becoming younger generations first search habit where they're not going to like a Google or a Bing where they're using social. So thinking of even the best practices and principles of like owning profiles and building reputation and making sure you're at least found for what you are and what you do in a positive light is important. It's shifting that way. It's still like the minority of people going to social first for a kind of search, but in a longer tail play for us, the success is kind of twofold. If you're a big enough brand, uh, not just say a single solo practitioner, social can be a good long-term investment curating kind of the conversation. The other area is they're great on community building. Uh, and I'm not saying now social specific to the popularized like Facebook and Instagram. There's endless amounts of kind of like sub forums or sub brands, especially if you're in a niche condition or a niche disease state of going in and kind of authentically talking around your experience within those kind of gated communities of, of patients and providers is, is, is another positive way to get yourself out there. So let's say, I mean, like a spine surgeon, right? Like, I guess your community would be physical therapy and pain management doctors and then any devices they, they might use like they're that's the community that they're they're trying to to build yeah it can be i mean it can certainly be those are probably the top level ones that make sense that are the first obvious that people think about of almost like more the business of healthcare again like who are the referring specialists who are the uh the medical device companies that will kind of work within my space but i'd really push it further is Patients are so vocal. A lot of those communities exist and uh, have a higher kind of barrier of entry to allowing people in because they're so curated. Uh, some of them exist on Facebooks and we work and we do big virtual health summits where we actually curate uh, support forums and groups within Facebook. So some exist there too, but just really pushing to look for the patient community, not just through the lens of who or how someone would refer to you. That makes me a little wary because now I feel like it's it's boundary pushing, right? Because it's it's a community of people that are suffering from the same or similar illnesses, and you as the practitioners coming in, like to do what? To give advice? To like? I, I worry that it, you know, you're going to be put in a position like people are going to be asking you questions about themselves. Now you're giving medical advice or declining to give medical advice over social media. I don't know. That makes me kind of wary. Yeah. I'm not representing by any means that this should be something to establish a connection on an individual level or sharing any kind of medical advice. But in that kind of pointed scenario, we use these channels to bring them to uh, forums or sorry, to summits, like pre-recorded information around uh, the partnership that we developed with this brand and some medical associations. So we use the high barrier of entry to the group knowing, okay, here's a kind of preset curated community of patients to go, hey, here's a preset curated section of information from authorities that we think you should digest. 
So it wasn't a like, how do you go in there and have a conversation with an individual person? But to your point, it was a much better yield of an investing efforts to potentially connect with people than like you're saying, just hopefully that people globally don't just find your information. Got it. And so, you know, you as the brand is coming in and offering them good information rather than an individual practitioner stepping into this community and like as yourself, right? Like, oh, Cleveland Clinic has this information for patients with lupus. Here's a slideshow. Here's a lecture rather than, hey, guys, um, so you got lupus, huh? Uh, I think I might be able to help. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that like abstract, just like high level theoretical intro is never going to be helpful. And then always seen as uh, not passing the sniff test. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, let's diverge a little bit from our main gigs for a second and, and talk about side gigs. So um, a lot of, there are a lot of physicians out there with side gigs um, many of which are directed towards doctors, some of which are directed towards other patients, whether they're like a health coach or, or something like that. Is there any difference between how we're going to manage our online presence for our side gig than from our main gig? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, not massive. I mean, in practice, certainly. I mean, understanding the nuance of each side gig, if it's something that's totally passive or someone just like signing up for a drip series of information or something that isn't involved in kind of like one-to-one -one live uh, of your efforts becomes a very different methodology in trying to kind of how to attract that patient or consumer. So there's going to definitely be things in practice that would be different. Uh, and again, it always kind of boils down to the time versus money investment. Uh, so there's some nuance to understand between those two, but in theory, not really. All right. All right. Now let's talk about trustworthiness. So it's in Google's best interest to make sure that the content that people are getting is legit, because if it's not, people are going to stop using them, right? It's like in their best interest for it to be, um, for, it, it's not some like ethical, they're like, we want to make sure that doctors' voices are heard. No, it's, it's, it's in their best interest for our voices to be the ones that are hurt. So people then keep going back over and over. Otherwise they're going to use Bing. So, so, right. So they want trusted voices. So how do we make sure our voices are those trusted voices, right? Just like put MD after my name. Is that good enough? And then Google's going to find me. Like how do, how do we make sure that we're, we're there and we're seen? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways and you're seeing some really interesting stuff and one specific even to you that uh, they came out with this uh, licensing certification process through YouTube. And I'm calling it, we've talked about this for like years, is like undemocratization of the internet. That it's guarded specifically to doctors where they're actually kind of giving this credential check mark to YouTube channels when they can prove that there's a licensed individual behind the brand. So you're oh, seeing some God. really trying. I need that. Yeah. I need that because, because, you know, we were, we were trying to surface some of our content and it couldn't do it because like I had this one episode that was awesome about our birds real. And we were talking about the pandemic and they were like, no, you can't surface that because it's, it's misinformation. No, it's about misinformation, how dangerous it is. Like, 
and, and, and we couldn't make it past their guardrails. Um, so that's, yes, okay, that's something I definitely need to work on. And clearly all our listeners that are on YouTube need to get on that now and establish themselves. Sorry, I interrupted. No, not at all. And that's a fairly recent update, but you, it gives you an indication of how serious they're taking this. And it's something they've been indicating for years. There's this like really dense, and if you love boring like uh, medical jargon documentation, there's this document called the Search Quality Graders Guideline. It's like 180 pages long, and it's uh, a qualitative take on them trying to give information to something like 10,000 plus quality raters, which are humans that look at a search result and then rate the quality of it. There's these massive sections around a uh, categorization of websites called Your Money, Your Life. If the website can affect someone's financial health or their actual health, they're, based, they're held to a higher standard. And what that standard is, is uh, how do you prove the author behind the content? And this is on a page level, not even a domain level or an entity level. And the simplest thing is making sure you're filling out the professional bio of you, of everything that credentials you, all the real world things you're doing to be an authority, how you're treating patients, and then have that referenced on the individual pages as well. When we think about building the sites, we're looking at condition-specific, disease-specific, procedure-specific, symptom-specific. What are the things you're doing in the real world that proves you're an authority on that lowest level as possible? If it's a talk here, if it's a research publication there, it's all contextually relevant to that single page. Publish it against your bio as well. Sorry, where does that get published? Like, what do you, sorry, I don't get involved in this aspect of it, uh, of, of the business. So I'm not sure what you're referring to. Well, like, where does that all get information get put? On your own website. I mean, if you, I'm, I'm probably more referring to like, if you have a practice website and you have oh. a, like a, a physical uh, nature to your business. You generally have pages around your site speaking to the conditions you treat, the procedures you offer, symptoms, X, Y, Z, that all of it's centered around anyone can buy a domain, anyone can produce content, but they've made it really clear we need to be 100% confident in who the individual is producing that content and reviewing that content. Got it. I, I just envisioned it being some like metadata location that doesn't get put online where you're putting in all of this information so they can be like, okay, this person's legit, but no, you're talking about your, the actual, the actual website. Yeah. I'm talking about the front end, at least in this conversation that these are quality raters. These are people that will search something they'll look into the, your website and it's all these subjective factors of, are they feeling that it's trustworthy? Are they feeling that it's from an authoritative source? Is there third party indications back to this site showing that they're authoritative? Those are all the things that you may be doing in your real world already that make you an authority maybe within the medical space physically, but you haven't translated it digitally. Okay. Okay. But what about YouTube? Because you're not necessarily going to have that stuff in a written form. Yeah, there's more signals prior to this like line in the sand that they drew now certifying the actual author behind the change. But simple things because you can link out to your website. So that gets crawled from your YouTube profile. So if your website is then dinged as being spammy, it's going to cross back into your YouTube channel as well. So Got there's it. already that indication linking back to your information. And then they have the same outlets as well. You can, 
uh, establish a bio on, a, on your about page within your YouTube channel. Uh, we always in, uh, encourage transcriptions within to the YouTube channels itself and then linking out to any references or citations that you're referring to within the content that kind of cause that third party or full circle loop of validation. Got it. What about eat? You haven't mentioned <laughs> eat yet. Let's eat. Yeah, so we, we touched on the T part of that, uh, which is uh, the last letter is trust. Uh, and even hysterically, even recently, they added a second E to it, and they're kind of now pronouncing it still eat with two E's. But historically, for like six years, it was always expertise, authority, trust, which is just another indicator that they use around, especially these sites of your money, your life. The second E that they added in recently was experience. And this was really more of a, a, a reaction to really AI content that they made it very clear that just because an, an AI, say, maybe is informative and, and they saw that an AI can and pass medical or licensing exams, just because you can produce content quickly doesn't mean that that content is coming from someone of experience. And this is really recent, like a few weeks ago, and really how we're digesting that is you as the physician are always seeing something nuanced or having conversations with patients. You have that real world experience that an AI is just like never going to be able to produce. So the letters are really just an acronym around kind of summing up a lot of what we talked about here. Like how do you take what you do as an expert in the physical world and translate it to the digital world? But how do they know? How do they know it's produced by AI, right? You've got these like, statements that they're making, if they could pass a medical licensing exam, right? How does the, how does the judge, I guess, from Google tell that it's coming from AI? I thought that was the whole idea is that you, you couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be the one, like the, the expert in that specific topic, but there's a lot of good case studies that are coming out in our field already of sites just being crushed organic uh, traffic wise that were these mass produced kind of like plug and play situational AI driven content sources that the outside world is kind of obsessed with this chat GPT AI and all you're hearing is kind of is murmuring that Google is like four to five times greater in its AI capability but they have a lot more to lose if it gets out into the wild and tarnishes their brand. So they certainly have an ability to how to flag and identify content that they're already factoring into their algorithms. So Google's AI is bigger than their AI. <laughs> so my, my gun is bigger than your gun. So whatever, they bring a gun to a knife fight. You know what I'm saying? That, uh, so that's how they're able to identify it because they just have a more sophisticated yeah, I mean, system. So it's I have no idea. I'm not going to say I'm validating this, but a lot of this has been floating around in our in, in our industry. Is that if Google opened up their AI free, like how ChatGPT did, they're saying the cost to run it would be something like four times their yearly revenue. So they're just figuring out how to release it and use it externally. That's um, that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any, any final words for, for the physician audience about, you know, how we can start marketing ourselves a little better, making sure we're where the patients, where the patients are or referring physicians are? 
so that we can make sure that they're coming to see us. Yeah, the one thing I always love to talk about is just uh, don't be afraid to speak on your consumer's level. And it's something that we always publish, like the date that the information is reviewed and then the last time that it was updated. Because oftentimes new research will come out, we'll ingest new variants of like search terms and how people are finding something. And you'll be surprised at the magnitudes of volume difference on kind of what people are searching and suffering from relative to just, to just how you would diagnose it or how you would code it and how it would get billed. We did like a really interesting study actually with a head and neck around septal perforations where there's only 14 unique term variants in diagnosing or uh, coding a septal perforation. And we mapped 1,700 different unique consumer terms that led to uh, proper diagnosis. And this is just one really isolated time period to just show the variety of layman things that people are looking for because they ultimately don't know what they have yet or who to treat it. So I think another way to think of that would be symptoms, not diagnoses. So like if you're having, these are the conditions I treat, chronic sinusitis, you know, otitis media, epistaxis, whatever, instead of putting that, categorize it by nasal congestion, runny nose, snoring, headaches, facial pain, you know, everyone's favorite fatigue, right? <laughs> so, so, cause that's what they're searching. They're searching for their symptoms. They're not searching for their diagnoses. And so that's where we can meet them. Yeah. That to us is really the second E is that experience side. And we always talk, it's almost like consult notes a little bit where you just kind of usually do that shorthand and just, Oh, patient presented this or described this or talked about this. But that is the goldmine to me because that is exactly how consumers are searching. Fantastic. So, Brian, where can people find you? Where can they find you online? Where can they find your company? Uh, me personally, I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, Brian Cush, Brian with a Y. My business partner is Brian with an I, so we make it very confusing. Uh, and then the company's titlehealthgroup.com. And the same, uh, we're pretty active in just the professional communities on, on LinkedIn. Brian Cush, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Brad. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast player. I'm also available for medical legal consulting and keynote speaking if you're interested, or to just give us some feedback on the show, email me at brad at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. I'll see you next week. The ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers.